0: I'm Dr Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast The Haggitude Sessions. In this series of conversations centered around my book, Haggitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, I offer you conversations with women who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us track our journey through the dark woods of the second half of life. Haggitude is a radical rewriting of the decades ahead for all women in their mid and elder years, beginning with the reclaiming of menopause as a liberating, alchemical moment from which to shift into your chosen, authentic and fulfilling future. You can find out more about Hackitude, the book and the membership program, at hackitude.org. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode of the Haggitude Sessions by Roz Savage. Roz is an author, a speaker, and happens to be the first and so far the only woman who has rode solo across the world's big three oceans, the Atlantic, the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. She holds four Guinness World Records, she's a member of the Order of the British Empire, and she was National Geographic Adventurer of the Year in 2010, and many other things as well which we're going to explore as we go on, so welcome Roz and thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much Sharon for inviting me, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Well,
0: let's begin with the rowing because I'm sure that will (laughs) intrigue people. You didn't always do this. And so tell us how it happened and why.
1: Sure. And I'll I'll try and keep it short and simple. Um, I mean, the glib answer is that I was tired of being a management consultant, which I've been doing for 11 years. Um, But the slightly longer answer would be I was going through a bit of an existential crisis and wondering what I was doing on this planet that resulted in me quitting my job. and leaving my husband and hence also my home and setting out in my mid thirties to find out who I am and what is the point of being me in this lifetime. So via a trip to Peru and seeing the retreating glaciers in the Andes, I had an environmental awakening. And the point of all that ocean rowing was to use my adventures to raise awareness of our ecological crisis through my blogs and my talks, books and podcasts. And um, so, yeah, I spent seven years doing that between 2005 and 2011. So it has been a little while now since my last ocean. Thank heavens.
0: And How old were you when you were doing that?
1: I was thirty-seven when I set out on my first ocean.
0: Wow, um,
1: old enough to know some, old enough to know better. Some people might say
0: <laughs> that's a wonderful age to do it. And I, I guess, well, you say you have. It's been a while since you've done that, so you're not. You're probably not at ocean level fitness at the moment. I'm guessing,
1: <laughs> not unless walking up Gloucestershire hills is keeping me fit. But no, <laughs> no. Um, not ocean fit at the moment Uh, but yeah so grateful to have had those experiences they were really really hard um, spending several months at a time alone out on the ocean without seeing dry land or another human being but they were incredibly character building and I really felt like a fundamentally different person by the end even of the first voyage the Atlantic crossing and I think in connection with our theme today, for me, age 37, it was a rather belated rite of passage into adulthood. I think it was me um, testing myself and finding out what I was capable of and stepping into a greater level of maturity. And I'm incredibly grateful to have had those experiences. But like I say, also incredibly grateful not to be doing them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and and we will for
0: sure come back to rites of passage and testing in a little while. But tell me a little bit now about how old you are now and where you sit on the kind of menopause scale, I suppose, during, after, before.
1: Um, I'm 54. It's the easy part to answer. <laughs> I... Probably don't want to share too much detail, but very conveniently, um I had a sort of practice menopause that lasted over the ocean rowing years, which was one practical detail less that I needed to worry about. so i I guess I probably am menopausal, maybe even postmenopausal now. So I suppose physicality aside, psychologically, I am menopausal.
0: And how? Does it how does that work for you in relation to that earlier kind of midlife testing period? I do you see menopause? So you're almost 20 years on from, from that period. Do you see menopause as another rite of passage, a different kind of initiation and testing, or is it just something completely different, you know, from from that?
1: Mm. I suppose I haven't been framing it in my mind in terms of the menopause because so far I haven't particularly had physical symptoms of that which I'm really quite happy about but there is something about reaching my mid-50s and achieving certain milestones like completing my doctorate and then the, the book that I've got coming out in November the ocean in a drop really took everything that I've learned over the last 19 years during my journey as an environmental campaigner and pulled it all together and tied it up with a big bow on top so there is this sense of on multiple different dimensions a completion of a cycle whether that's my cycle as a Fertile Woman, or my cycle as an environmental campaigner, or the sort of extended continuation of the ocean rowing years, I feel right now I am on this cusp of a new chapter, and whether that's seven years or 20 years or the rest of my life, I don't yet know, but I I am in this place of (laughs) pause, maybe, even if not menopause. Sensing into what comes next, what does it mean to me to step into this next chapter of my life? What does it feel like to be an elder, to let go of some of those preoccupations and vanities of relative youth and to embrace the ageing process? So this is very current for me right now. Yeah. In a place of not knowing what the next chapter is going to look like
0: yes it is very much a pause psychologically as well isn't it uh, not just a pause in the menses but a pause in in that part of life where we the first half of life during which we are building and creating something and that is the big question in this time between stories which comes for most women around the age of menopause what are we incubating and what comes next so what do you think that you are gaining? Or what do you think you have gained as you have gotten older?
1: Ooh, so much. <laughs> and also let go of a few things that weren't serving me. So what have I gained? Humility. <laughs> um, oceans will do that to you. Hmm. They're very humbling places, as is nature generally. Um, I've hopefully gained some wisdom about what I can change and what I can't. I'm probably still on the ambitious side of wanting to be an agent for change in the world. But at the same time, acknowledging that the only thing that I can be even vaguely sure of changing is my own self with varying degrees of success. (laughs) I hope that I've gained some insights into I was going to say into human nature but maybe it's without wanting to sound too solipsistic it's maybe the insights into my own nature and what to me signifies a life well lived. I think for my earlier life um, so up until my 30s I bought too much into other people's ideas of what constituted a good life Mm. whether that was material success and consumption whether it was the esteem of others whether it was the job title or the salary grade or whatever Um, As a child of the 80s, I think I really did buy into that materialistic lifestyle, partly as a rebellion against my Methodist preacher parents and the constant niggling of financial scarcity as I was growing up. So I went through that rebellion and uh, only to come out of the other side and Acknowledge that maybe mum and dad did know a few things after all, and maybe material success is, is not ultimately what will make us feel as we lie on our deathbed or sit in our, sit in our rocking chair, uh, make us proud of a life well lived. So I feel like I've tuned in much more to what's my definition of a successful life.
0: And what would you say it was?
1: To do my best to try and make a difference, but maybe above all else to evolve and grow as much as I can in this lifetime, to grow spiritually and emotionally. And in terms of, of wisdom, I, I sort of dip in and out of, of Buddhism and, and particularly this year for various reasons, I've been thinking about death quite a lot. It might be partly the aftermath of COVID. I also lost a friend, a dear friend to suicide earlier this year. And um, I've taken great solace in the Buddhist concept of reincarnation and I've been reading a lot around that. And so I do think quite a bit about what is my soul contract? Um, What did I come here to do and how can I move myself forward in terms of spiritual development as much as I can in this lifetime to hand off to my next incarnation so that's a framing that works for me and hopefully encourages me to try and be my best self although (laughs) what that best self looks like varies from day to day
0: yeah, I think for me, the second half of life is very much about perhaps finally coming into a true sense of, of your calling, of the particular gift that you have to offer the world at this particular time. So Jung would have argued, of course, that the second half of life was very much about the development of the self, the self with a big S, you know, uh, moving away from the kind of archetype of the hero into the archetype of of the self. and. I suppose for me, calling as a concept has two threads to it. First of all, there is the self-development, you know, your own journey as a soul, what you are here to learn as a soul. And then the second part of it is the gift that you give to the world, you know, what you put out there. And both of these things, of course, have to be handled you, you know you, it's best to have a balance between them there is a tendency for some people to go too far into the development of the own soul and, and not enough in service and for others a tendency to go too much into service and to forget that they need to develop and grow as well what what would you say is it, is it do you have a a sign what your calling is in that sense of a gift to the world
1: I'll come back to that question in just a moment. I just really want to say the way you described that was resonating with me so much because when um, the crazy idea grabbed hold of me to go and row alone across all these oceans, it did feel very much like a calling. It's an idea that I don't know if it came from my subconscious or the collective consciousness or from the ether or divinity, however your worldview would describe it and there were many times on the ocean when I really felt like I needed to be in that overlap between doing something to explore and expand my own limitations and while being of service to something greater than myself. I needed to be in the intersection of that Venn diagram in order to keep my motivation going because I, I did find it incredibly hard to row those oceans. So I suppose in one sense, I am a a bit spoiled because having had that thunderbolt from the blue, that call to adventure where in my heart, I knew immediately that it was the project that I'd been looking for to serve this deeper purpose of environmental evangelism. I suppose I'm hoping for something with that amount of blinding clarity again. And it may not happen twice in one lifetime, maybe I'm really incredibly lucky that it happened even once. So, I would say, to come back to your question now, that my environmental activism has led me to the belief that what we fundamentally need is a shift in consciousness. That we're not going to solve our environmental problems from the level of consciousness that created them. So that means we also can't solve them from within our existing capitalist system, which is a product of our current level of consciousness. So I suppose I would say that all I know at the moment about this next phase is that it is something about what can I do to help elevate the collective consciousness which I suspect is going to come back to how do I elevate my own personal consciousness and what that means to me is a deeper understanding of the inescapable interconnectedness of everything of humans with the rest of nature humans with other humans connections through time connections across space this web of life everything really is connected and if our politicians and our CEOs, and if all of us lived from that knowledge, then I think we would be living in a very different world. So I don't know yet at this stage whether that what that's going to look like for me, but that's where I'm heading at the moment.
0: And how do you think twenty years on, your ocean experience has played into that? What qualities did they give you? Resilience, I guess, and endurance? Sh- surely. but, Anything else?
1: Um, yeah, definitely resilience, <laughs> a lot of that. Um, resourcefulness, but I suppose even at the more meta level, a greater confidence in my own abilities um, to do hard things. Because before I set out on the ocean, I my self-esteem during the latter years of my career as a management consultant, my self-esteem had really just been going down the drain, I was in a very poor state and had so little confidence in my ability to even run my own life, let alone have any wider influence. And I suppose, in a way, it connects back to the resilience and the tenacity that changes can look really big and daunting and maybe even impossible, but when I feel daunted, I remind myself that it took me 5 million strokes give or take, wow. um, to get across three oceans. And it's amazing what we can achieve when day upon day we just keep taking baby steps in the right direction, albeit sometimes with like some quantum leap that comes completely out of the blue. So um, I suppose once you've done something like rowing across the oceans that was <laughs> beyond a stretch goal, for me <laughs> I don't yeah. particularly like exercise I'm quite scared of oceans so you know wow. well outside my comfort zone to have done that and stuck at it for seven years and, and made it happen it's sort of I've destroyed all my own excuses Sharon it's a problem <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a very
0: wonderful problem to me it, I'm I'm in awe absolutely in awe so Yeah. Well, and you mentioned it yourself. Another subject that I do like to talk about in these episodes is death, uh, because a little bit like menopause, it's a word that we don't find ourselves particularly comfortable with in this culture. And these are conversations that we don't seem able to have in an open and authentic and natural way. It's still a little bit of a taboo. And you've already given some indication, you know, of your belief system, um, which is tending you said, towards the Buddhist and ideas of reincarnation. But the end of the journey through elderhood is death. How do you How do you feel about that? How do you? navigate that knowledge? Does it impact you on a day-to-day basis or is it just something that that isn't really a focus right now yet?
1: I suppose to me at the moment it still seems like a theoretical concept. I'm hoping I've got a good few years left in me but from some of the reading that I've been doing this year including anecdotes around death as channeled through a medium by the souls who have actually departed talking about their lives and their deaths and their life between lives. I hope that I am at peace with the idea of my own mortality that it is a transition rather than an ending and heck if it's an ending then I've ended and I've got nothing to worry about, really, because I won't. You'll never know. (laughs) I love that Mark Swain quote about I hadn't existed for many millions of years before I was born and suffered not the slightest inconvenience from it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I suppose what happened when when my friend Barry um, died earlier this year, it seemed to me that there was a a thinning of the veil um, between the living and the dead, that it's not quite as binary a situation as the more Christian tradition, I suppose, would would have us believe, although of course there is a Christian belief in the afterlife. So I, I hope that I, you know, I feel like I'm a late bloomer. I feel like my most effective and powerful years are yet to come. And so I'm just really hoping that the universe agrees with me and that (laughs) I will get the opportunity to use these lessons that I've learned and that I've worked so hard to integrate. It's one thing to go off and have a big hero's journey adventure and to go, wow, gosh, you know, I've I've really, um, I've learned a lot. But then when I finished the Atlantic in particular, the first ocean, I was, desperate not to leave behind that new version of me on the ocean but to actually integrate the lessons learned and I'm a a great one for journaling and that really for me is my way of processing a lot of integrating things of making sense of life trying to make sense of myself (laughs) sometimes more successfully than others so hopefully when my time comes I've worked hard (laughs) that I will have peace of mind and hopefully very few regrets about the way that I've lived this life, that I hope I have and will continue to live it to the max and hopefully do more good than harm in this world.
0: Yeah, it's interesting in the context of what you just said that it it is acknowledged in, in depth psychology for sure that the most difficult stage of the initiatory process, you know, the separation initiation, return, is not the initiation, which is by design extremely challenging, but actually is the return. It's what you do when you come back out of the underworld or the other world that is actually the hardest part. If you've survived the initiator experience, it's how you then use it, how you assimilate it into into coming back into a world in which you feel very different, you know, as if you've changed and perhaps the world hasn't, or the world has changed in different ways. You're not quite in parallel with it anymore. So, yeah, that's just a, an interesting point worth dwelling on. If you had, do, you have an idea of death as a particular kind of energy? So, it's been interesting again talking to people in these episodes. I I see everything pretty much in archetypal terms. So if I think of death, I personify it. You know, in a, in a mythical way. So death to me is old bone mother. Generally, you know, I think of I think of an old woman, cloaked in black, going around gathering bones. Uh, some of the old European folklore about old women who sleep on bones and bring them back to life. So if I think of death, it it automatically crops up in my psyche as a kind of character, but of course it doesn't do that for everybody by any stretch of the imagination. Does it for you? Do you have a kind of sense of death as a figure or as an energy or just not not yet?
1: Um, I never really thought about it in those terms until just now, as you were describing that, um, the the grim reaper or yes, whatever we choose to call it. I suppose, and I'm saying this right off the top of my head, I suppose I would think of it more as life beckoning me into the next phase into the disincarnate phase into the life between lives, which maybe is our ultimate opportunity for integration. I suppose I would think of death maybe just as life tapping me on the shoulder and and saying it's it's time for the the next cycle the the yin, the composting, the integration, the processing, mm. while um, while relieved of this uh, meat sack that we we live in here on this this beautiful earth, which is such a time of learning and exploration, and I'm certainly in no hurry to to leave this earth, but um, I can also I hope that when I reach that threshold, that there will be the sense of Oh, I am complete. Mm. I'm ready. I'm tired. I'm out of here now. And it's interesting we're having this conversation. We're recording this on the day of the Queen's funeral. I'm imagining she reached that point of, I've seen enough. Yes,
0: Liz. <laughs> Boris Johnson followed by Liz Truss. That would do it for anybody, wouldn't it, really? I
1: think it would, yes. <laughs> Goodness 15, me. Yeah, 15th Prime Minister. I mean, bless Queen Liz. Yeah, she's... She, saw a lot what a uh, sole contract you must have signed up for
0: yes indeed yes a, a, a bunch of very fine qualities there for sure given that we're having this conversation in the context of my book Hagitude I'd love to ask you what the word hag conjures up for <laughs> you horror probably by the sound <laughs> of that laugh <laughs>
1: um well i'm getting a bit more used to it now thanks to your like celebration of haggitude i am starting to make friends with my inner hag i would say i suppose if you'd have asked me a couple of years ago then hag does tend to conjure up images of a a rather witchy type figure with a hairy wart on her chin and <laughs> um you know it's it's not a very glamorous word Especially if, I don't know, if it, is it actually short for haggard? Do they have the same root?
0: No, I don't believe that they do. Although, having said that so definitively, now I'm not entirely sure that I'm right. I don't know, is the the short answer?
1: I suppose I'm a little bit more peaceful with the word crone rather than hag. Oh, that's interesting. Why? That is a good question.
0: You see, to me, the word crone always relates to a very old woman. And I see a crone as very old, quite wizened and sometimes quite frail. Not always, but sometimes quite frail. Whereas the word hag to me covers a wider age range, you know, so you can be a middle-aged hag and a very old hag. And I suppose the reason why I'm kind of partial to the word is that when you look back at the stories where the word hag would be used, they really are describing women who are loved, not not uh, not loved not always because they're doing active evil, but because they're not in the system. And so these tend to be women who are not defining themselves by their relationship to others, and women who are not defining themselves by the laws of the culture that they fit into, or by the laws of the church or whatever, but who are just very much expressing their own essence you know their own being in the world they're kind of outside of the confines of the culture and therefore they are dangerous and like witches and like other um female archetypes goddesses they have been demonized by a very patriarchal culture. So I guess to me, I kind of like the idea of reclaiming it. But because it can be so wide an age range, I find it a little bit easier than the word "crone." So I'm interested.
1: <laughs> Maybe it's jo- just onomatopoeic because it rhymes with "sag." <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you for the uh, the clarification, and that has helped me to further embrace and embody my inner hag because. Um, Earlier this year, I think it was in connection with writing my book, I discovered uh, a different meaning of the word savage being my last name Mm. that I hadn't really encountered before, that we'd been told that people really wanted to be accepted by the tribe because to be rejected by it meant death, that you needed to conform in order to be part of your mutual support network but then I came across this idea that there were savages these non-conformists who maybe lived outside the village in the the forest or the mountains or whatever Mm -hmm. and they were sort of the the rebels and the mavericks and I really rather liked this interpretation of my last name I mean along with the sort of indigenous connotations as well because you know, savage for a long time has seemed like quite an insulting term mm-hmm. and it was certainly a tough name to go through school with. But if savage, like hag, does mean somebody who doesn't feel the need to conform, who has the courage to question the the status quo and the group think, then I think that we we need more hags in the world right now because a lot of our narratives are breaking ta- breaking down and we do need new ways of looking at things and fresh perspectives from people who have that courage to be regarded as outsiders or weird or rebellious in some way so having been a very good little girl and then very conformist through my 20s the older i get the more radical I'm becoming and the less I care about what people think of me and my opinions. And I don't know if that's because I have more confidence in my opinions or just that my confidence in other people's opinions is <laughs> diminishing all the time, coming back to our current crop of politicians, maybe. Mm-hmm. So that for me is one of the really positive aspects of growing older mm-hmm. is being willing to be more outspoken. And yes, I, I very much hope to be a a cantankerous, outspoken old lady. Yeah,
0: it's interesting, isn't it? In order to be able to properly see and challenge, if necessary, the cultural mythology, you do at some level have to have stepped outside it. You know, you have to be mm-hmm. able to see the narrative and it's very difficult to do that often from within. So I look at all of those old women in our stories some of them labeled hags overtly in the story and some of them by implication and i see old women who are not part of it a couple of exceptions the character of the henwife is one of my favorites in folk tales and fairy tales that i talk about in hagitude and she is very much kind of a part of the community although she sees more widely how it how it is in the world than the community does But most of these old women are kind of edge dwellers, you know, and I think perhaps that is a natural process that we go through, each in our own individual and unique way as we get older.
1: Mm, And my uh, situation is maybe even exacerbated by the total 520 days and nights that I spent alone on the ocean. And when you come back to dry land after three four or even five months away from human society it can be quite interesting always landing ashore like an alien and going wow aren't people fascinating look at all these strange behaviors (laughs) (laughs) why are we this way um it did feel quite strange on occasions coming back to to land and people would say, welcome back to civilization. I'd sort of look around and think, well, oh, it doesn't seem very civilized to me. <laughs> indeed. Uh, certainly the scale of values and priorities when you're in the middle of an ocean is, is very different from what it is on dry land.
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. And you, you've, um, you've used the key phrase in a hack a couple of times now, so I'm going to pick up on that for a minute in the context of the different archetypes of elderhood, I suppose, that I wrote about in Hagitude. So you've already talked a little bit about one of them, which I, in the book, call the truth teller. That is the elder woman who has stepped outside of the culture and can see which bits of it need to be challenged or questioned, not necessarily challenged in an aggressive way, but you know questions raised about it. And I'm always fascinated by the complexity of good truth telling, you know, recognizing that at some level, there is never any one single truth in any situation. And that it's really very important to, to challenge and to question the truth in a way that is designed to, hmm, I don't really know what word I should use here, and in, in a way that is designed to lead to positive outcomes, rather than just for the sake of having your voice heard. If you know what I mean.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think. I think this is probably fairly universal. That as as we get older, we realise that issues are very rarely black and white, that neither poll is going to be correct. And that there is an infinite number of shades of grey, not just 50, um, in between the black and the white. And that truth is inherently very, like there are multiple truths and I'm not talking about, you know, alternative truths. I'm just meaning that everything is story. You know, everything is a matter of of perspective. And um, but having said that, there are certain things that are are important and and valuable that maybe our current story of civilization is um, neglecting. So I suppose I would say that I am a a seeker of truth while also appreciating that in any given situation there can be multiple truths depending on your perspective and your conditioning, looking at the situation. I think as I get older, I am trusting my own sense of truth and rightness more and more. I suppose that having grown up in a a very head-centred family, in a head-centred culture, I used to try and find the truth by reading. But as I get older, I feel like, and especially now that we seem to have such a divided media landscape, where you're reading this and you're reading that and you're thinking, well, those can't possibly both be true. My inner truth, my sense of discernment is becoming more important to me as my sort of inner truth compass Mm. to try and navigate this, that I have less faith than I've ever had before in any one media outlet or news channel to give me an objective perspective. And I'm not blaming maybe i'm a little bit blaming the media for that but situations are always so complex they can only ever reveal uh, an edited perspective so my inner truth um and actually i'm just looking at my deck of lovely Tao oracle cards here it's based on the I ching and one of the cards in this deck is is inner truth and it is about dropping into your heart and feeling that embodied sense of what feels right to me. And I've even, I'm quite proud of this, Sharon, so I hope you won't mind me sharing this. Um having been a very head person, I found that I can now actually use my body to sort of douse between yes and no to a, a yes-no question. That when I just focus on the question, I get a bit of a a pull to the left or a pull to the right for a no or a pull to the right for a yes and that might sound a bit bonkers to some of your listeners but in a confusing world I'm actually finding it a very helpful way of gauging ways forward although I do wish that I could ask open questions but <laughs> my body dousing isn't quite that sophisticated yet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anything that brings us down to an awareness of our body and what our body is trying to tell us. And our body's wisdom sounds like a very fine thing to me, because I think that also that is something that can happen as we go, as we get older, that we are thrown into an inevitable greater awareness of our body because stuff starts to break apart from anything else, you know? And so there is a a requirement almost to be more aware of your body, even if sometimes it's through discomfort, than there might have been when you were younger and had the possibility of ignoring it, you know. And I think that again, there's there's a bit of a design in that too. We can see it as as, as an inevitable process of decline and deterioration, and of course it is. But but in that we there are lessons to be learned. I found that when I um, started to get ill, uh, eighteen months, two years ago. That it gave me a great sense of tenderness for my body. It's the for the first time I was just looking at it and thinking, "Oh my goodness, I can't take any movement for granted anymore." And then you become more mm. and more aware of the miracle of movement that you've had all of your life. That's the you know the simplistic side of it. But also there was just a greater sense of seeing the body as a literal soulmate. You know, it is something mm. not that I don't see it as a vessel for a soul. I see it as a Two things in collaboration, if you like. So yeah, liter- literally, literally a soulmate.
1: Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, there definitely there is wisdom in our bodies, and I, I know we we do live in this very brain centric culture. Um, but yes, we have to remember that when uh, <laughs> which organ is it telling us that our brain is the most important organ in the body? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, and so far, touch wood, my body is bearing up pretty well, although my skin is starting to do some slightly odd things. I would rather it didn't. But um, <laughs> my health has, has been quite good. But my younger sister had breast cancer last year and, and thank heavens they caught it early and she should be fine. But for my little sis to have an encounter with the the big C definitely was a bit of a, a wake up call for me, um, acknowledging that I'm not as young as I used to be, and it also really comes home to me now when I see my friends' kids. I don't have children of my own, but when I see friends' children who uh, who tower over me and have got beards and, you know, they're properly grown up, it, it really does bring home to me that I am now that generation.
0: And, and looking at the other archetypes, Ros, Um, We've talked about Truth Teller, which, of course, is very similar to or um, which is interlinked with the trickster as a cultural disruptor. Are there any other of the archetypes that I wrote about that particularly resonated with you? So, you know, we have the fairy godmother who is the mentor. We have the dangerous old woman or the initiator and tester of young people, characters like Baba Yaga. Uh, We have the wise woman we have the women who are creatresses, who weave the world into being. Is there any particular archetype that that strikes you as something perhaps that you're growing towards as you become older?
1: Yes, yeah, that's, that's a really beautiful question and really speaks to something that I've been working my way into. One of my archetypes there is that of mentor and I suppose because I still identify as a student in so many regards it's been a bit of a challenge for me to have enough regard for my own level of expertise or level of wisdom see myself as a a mentor but I suppose that other people are seeing me that way you know with my my motivational speaking and I, I do coaching as well. So really stepping into that and owning it. I think for a while I felt that I was an imposter in that role, that I'm still trying to figure life out. So who am I to offer guidance to anybody else? But the way that I try to offer guidance is by telling my stories. And I've been blessed so far with a very rich life and a a lot of learning opportunities almost always by doing it the wrong way first and then going Mm -hmm. oh that didn't work very well how can I try and figure out a better way so that's how I see myself as a mentor by relating my stories be they salty old sea stories or relationship war stories or whatever they may be and then allowing people to interpret those as as suits them and their circumstances the best. But that is quite a shift of perspective for me that I'm still finding a little challenging.
0: Mm. And finally, is I'd like to kind of circle back to the rowing and ask you how it was at the time. So you were a woman in your, in your mid and then your late 30s doing something that was rather radical for a woman to do how was that received, you know, the fact that you were a woman doing this and that you were a woman entering midlife rather than a very young woman? How does that relate to this, you know, overarching narrative of older women being incapable, irrelevant, just, you know, needing to be written off and go and sit quietly in a corner? Was that a, a factor for you, that you were a woman doing this? Was that part of the the conversation around what you did?
1: I feel like I didn't get too much commentary about it, apart from the one time that I had a rather spectacular failure, my first attempt on the Pacific. And the media reporting was actually quite fair, but unfortunately Twitter had just been invented. Yay. And so there was quite a lot of very unfavourable, brackets, extremely insulting um, commentary from the armchair critics about my failure on the Pacific. And um, I had to develop a, a much thicker skin overnight and developed a story that helped me save my sanity, which was that my failure vindicated all the armchair critics for never having tried to do anything a bit out of the ordinary or indeed get off their sofas so um my failure just made them feel better like pat look told you you should never try and do anything too brave look at that silly woman so yeah there was a lot of really nasty commentary and aspersions cast on my my sanity and my it, it just got really silly which uh was a good life lesson for me because who knows maybe at some point in the future I will again be sticking my head way above the parapet and people will be trying to shoot it off and for me to have had that experience and maybe that's another thing about embracing my haggitude is that I don't need to be universally liked anymore yeah that's important and yeah it It is. I mean, I know we sort of almost touched on this earlier, but I just really want to name it explicitly and say, I don't really mind so much. Um, I think it was Paul Newman who said, if nobody ever disagrees with you, then you're not really saying anything. Mm -hmm. And in these times, I feel that we do need more people to be brave and outspoken and to say what they're seeing. And not in a a hostile way, you know, earlier you, you said challenging way and then sort of correct yourself. But I think we, we do need the the dissident voices and the, the critical thinking and for people to be speaking their truth, which may not be everybody's truth, but just to, to call it out because it feels like these old patriarchal systems are no longer fit for purpose and they're crumbling. And yet the old guard are still hanging on to them for dear life and doubling down even and there is such an invitation in these times and it may be that we do go to hell in a handbasket and the civilization collapses but I still feel that the more we can sow the seeds of that new consciousness by speaking our truth and inviting people into new ways of being and doing and relating to each other and to nature, that we are already sowing the seeds of that next iteration of the the human enterprise. So I think it's a very cool time to be alive. I think it's a cool time to be a woman because we do need to resurrect and amplify the the feminine archetypes and thank you Sharon for all of the work that you're doing in this we need to bring the divine feminine back into our financial systems we need to bring the world back into balance between the masculine and the feminine i don't think women should be running the world although it'd be nice to have the opportunity just (laughs) to see how it goes but um i think we're we would be wise enough to realize that we're stronger when masculine and feminine work together harmoniously and I'm excited and I this is another reason that I want to live a good long time yet is that I'm just so full of curiosity to see what the future holds and yeah it's just never been a better time to be a hag
0: oh that's just the perfect place to end I couldn't have I couldn't have wished for a better place to end so thank (laughs) you so much for that and uh before you go tell people where they can find you, your website, for example.
1: My website is imaginatively called ww.rozavage.com. That's ros with a, a Z or a Z, depending on where you are. And that's got links to my social media accounts, although I don't do that much on social media at the moment, although in the run up to my next book, I guess I will get and back. And the book on that.
0: is and the book is coming out in October, you said?
1: actually November 25th exactly a month before Christmas
0: perfect thank you for that
1: yeah I'm excited about it and hope that people will find it bracing and also helpful and inspiring and encouraging that we are all making a difference with everything that we do even if at the moment the difference is on the plane of consciousness rather than on the visible material plane everything we do makes a difference for better or worse. So, yes, I'm excited about that coming out.
0: Brilliant, and thank you for being here.
1: Absolute pleasure always to talk with you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Haggitude Sessions. Please think about writing a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends. And if you'd like to find out more about Haggitude, the book and the membership programme, please visit Haggertude.org. Borg.